Well, Lord, you're big and you love us. <clears throat> that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. My sin doesn't affect anybody. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who's made that claim? Or maybe you've made a claim like that. It's not so bad what I'm doing in private. It's not hurting anybody. It's a common line of reasoning, but the problem is that in the Bible, there's no real concept of a sort of sin, a category of sin that's exclusively private. Here's how D.A. Carson over at Trinity uh, explained it. Sin is social. Although it is first and foremost defiance of God, there is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. You know, we've been in this series walking through the life of Elijah, and this week we find ourselves in 1 Kings 21. And today in 1 Kings 21, we'll see in the life of the wicked king Ahab this principle playing out. We're going to see that Ahab's first problem was a worship problem, like we've seen in past weeks, but that wasn't Ahab's only problem. Ahab also had a problem that his wickedness was in the horizontal realm as well as the vertical realm. In other words, his vertical brokenness and his relationship with God resulted in horizontal brokenness in his relationships with others. His false worship led to false practice in the mistreating of others. That's part of what we're going to see today, but it's not all bad news today. Actually, in many ways, 1 Kings 21, the chapter we're going to be looking at is a story of the gospel, the good news, in miniature. So over the course of today's passage, we're going to see three parts. We're going to see sin, we're going to see judgment, and we're going to see mercy. We'll see sin, judgment, and mercy, and then at the end, we'll circle back around and see if we can get a big idea for today. So first, sin. In the first 16 verses, we'll see this principle playing out. We are prone to take our cues from the world instead of from God. We are prone to take our cues from the world instead of from God. That's what Ahab does in these first 16 verses. And uh, as you follow along in 1 Kings 21, I want you to look for that, listen for that as I read. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So... She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, 
and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king and take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. In those 16 verses, the first cue that Ahab is doing this, taking his cues from the world instead of God, is back in verse 2 with the mention of the vegetable garden. Now, you might ask, what's the significance of the vegetable garden? Well, I think the author is pointing us right there in verse 2 to what he wants us to see in the whole rest of the passage. Here's what I mean. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is a vineyard watered by God. So here's how it says it in Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. On the other hand, the only times a vegetable garden is mentioned in the Old Testament is with respect to foreign nations, especially Egypt, the place of slavery. So I want you to look at this contrast here in Deuteronomy 11 between Israel and these foreign nations that are depicted as a vegetable garden. Verses 10 through 12 of Deuteronomy 11. Now I've been looking, uh, I've been trying to convince Sarah for eight years that my aversion to vegetables has uh, merit. And I finally found a scripture to support it. Here's how it goes. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So the idea there, the contrast is that Israel is a low-maintenance vineyard that God waters himself from heaven. And all the other nations are working by the sweat of their brow, like in a vegetable garden, to irrigate the ground and work really, really hard just to get a little bit of produce. So throughout the Old Testament, vineyard positive, vegetable garden negative. And we don't need to belabor the point, but the author's trying to show us that this is symbolic of what Ahab is trying to do with Israel as a whole. His trying to change a vineyard into a vegetable garden is symbolic of what he's been doing throughout his time as king so far. He's looking to the other nations and trying to make Israel like them. He's breaking down the things that would have made Israel unique, a set-apart people, a people holy to God. How does he do that? Well, there's a few examples in our text even today. One way Ahab tries to make Israel like the nations is that Ahab acts as if the king is above the law instead of the law being above the king. Right. So in other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms, The king was above the law. He had absolute authority. The law was subject to the king's wishes, and the king could disregard the law or even change the law on a whim if he wanted to. But in Israel, it was never that way. For generations, Israel didn't even have a king. And when they did get a king, God had many prescriptions for how that what that king could do and what that king 
couldn't do. The king had to submit to the law. The law was above the king because the law was given by God, and ultimately the king had to submit to God himself. And that's really the most distinctive, the most definitive distinctive of Israel with regard to the other nations. The king of Israel was only ever an under ruler, so to speak. The king of Israel, the true king of Israel, was always supposed to be Yahweh, the Lord. And the king, the human king, was only ever an under ruler who was an extension of Yahweh's rule over the people. And so all the laws in Israel fell in line with this principle, including the land laws, right? In other nations, the king was the owner of the land, and he would parcel out land as he saw fit. He would take a piece of land here, or he would uh, grant a patch of land to someone as a reward over there. But in Israel's law, it was different. In Israel's law, God owned all the land. He was the true owner, and he parceled it out as he chose. And the way he chose was, when they came into the promised land, he allotted portions of land to the 12 tribes. Each tribe got a set area, and each family got a portion of land within their tribal inheritance. And the way it worked is that, that you were never supposed to give up your family's inheritance. Here's what it says in Leviticus 25 up on the screen. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. That means permanently. For the land is mine. That's what the Lord says. And so if I got into money troubles as someone in Israel, I could sell my land to pay off my debt. But really it was just a lease. Because at the Jubilee year, at the end of 50 years, it would come back to my family again. So I was only ever really leasing the land. The land was supposed to stay in my family forever and ever. So now it's more clear, I think, why Naboth won't sell his vineyard to Ahab, right? Ahab's offer, it's not that it's inherently unjust. It's not that it's inherently exploitative. It's a very normal offer. It's a reasonable offer. He's saying, I'll pay you the fair market value for your land, or I'll even give you a better vineyard if you want to. We see that all the time happen in our society, right? Local governments use eminent domain, and they can just call you up and say, hey, we're going to take your property. We're going to give you a fair market value for it, but we need it for parkland for the village of Deerfield or something. And in the end, there may not be much you can do about it. But that's not inherently unfair. But what is unfair, or what, what, what Naboth's protest is, is that God said Israel was going to be different. God said in Israel, this isn't the way it's going to work. In Israel, Naboth knew he didn't have the right to make this sale because the land wasn't ultimately his. It ultimately belong to the Lord, not to the king, not to him, not to anybody else. And so now Ahab's real sin issue, I think, is coming into focus. Ahab's real sin issue isn't really that he wants to own the land. Ahab's real sin issue isn't really that he wants to see himself as above the law. Ahab's real sin issue isn't that he wants to turn a vineyard into a vegetable garden. All of those are symptoms of the real problem. And the big umbrella problem is that Ahab wants to do kingship like the nations do kingship. Ahab wants to take his cues from the other nations around instead of from the word of the Lord. Other nations' kings plant vegetable gardens. Other nations' kings own land. Other nations' kings do what they want and are above the law. But the real problem is that Ahab's modeling how to be a king on how other nations' kings act. But all along, God laid out how a king of Israel was supposed to act. And it was very different, very different from the norm. Some of you might be seeing already how applicable this is to our own lives, right off the bat in this first point. 
just as in this text, we see that there's a normal way to be king and God's way to be king. And we see that Ahab did it the normal way and God called that wickedness. Isn't there a normal way to do motherhood, mothers, and God's way to do motherhood? And if as a mother you're looking to the world and to all the other moms for your cues as to how to do motherhood instead of to the word of the Lord, it's likely that you will result, it'll result in you falling into what God would call wickedness. Or financial advisors. There's a normal way to do financial advising, and there's God's way to do financial advising. So if as a financial advisor you're taking your cues from all the other financial advisors around you and how they do business and what their ethics are, instead of from the word of the Lord, you're likely to fall into what God will eventually call wickedness. Or maybe a little closer to home here as a church. There's a normal way to do church and there's God's way to do church. And if we as a church and as church leadership are constantly looking around at all the other churches in the area to take our cues as to how to do church, instead of looking first and foremost to the word of the Lord, we are likely at some point to lead in such a way that God would call wickedness. The question for us, North Sub, is where are we looking for our examples? Our examples of how to lead our homes, how to run our businesses, how to shepherd our church. Are we looking more to Egypt and Babylon or their modern day equivalents more than God? If the wisdom we get from Oprah and the findings that we find in our scientific journals and the books we read written by leadership gurus, if that's where we're primarily taking our cues of how to live life instead of from the word of the Lord, we will end up being very normal people in this world. The problem with being very normal people in this world is that we'll fall into the wickedness of Ahab, who is doing kingship like a normal king. When all the while, just like Old Testament Israel, you and I are supposed to be a set-apart people, a people who are different, distinct from the nations, who are strangers and aliens here and who do life abnormally. And make no mistake, it will be abnormal if you and I choose to live our lives God's way. We will look weird if we are living life God's way instead of imitating the other nations. I had an issue that fell out this way when I was a high school football coach. I was working for a head coach that I loved dearly and really enjoyed working for. But over time, we started to break the rules as a team under his leadership. When there was a game that was being played in the mud, he would bring out the long cleats that were illegal and put our players in long cleats. During the offseason, we were practicing at times when the state said we weren't allowed to practice. And so I brought these concerns to him, and his response was, Tim, everybody does this. All the other teams we play against do this. It's really not a big deal. After praying about it and consulting others about it, I just couldn't shake it, and I felt like I just had to step down as a coach because, in the end, we as Christians aren't allowed to be normal. We aren't allowed to take our cues from the other nations. Shortly after I resigned, he was actually let go by the school, and I was able to jump back on with the new coach. But I really believe that even if I wouldn't have ever been able to coach again because of that decision, it would have been the decision I needed to make because of this call As Christians, we're to be a distinct, abnormal, set-apart people who don't take our cues from the nations, but from the word of the Lord. But we're prone to do that, aren't we? We're prone to take our cues from the nations around us, from the world around us, instead of 
from God. And there's bad news coming before the good news comes. Throughout the Bible, after sin comes judgment. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. In verses 17 through 24 in the second part of our story. Here we're going to see the principle that our sins are never hidden from God's sight. Our sins are never hidden from God's sight. Please listen for that principle as you follow along with me as I read verses 17 through 24. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. I don't know what Ahab was thinking when he did what he did. Maybe was he thinking that he was going to get away with this injustice? If he was thinking that, it wouldn't be unlike us, would it? Especially when we get a little bit of a taste of power. Those of you who have been elevated to positions of authority in your workplace or in the community or even here at church know the temptation that comes when you get elevated to a position of authority and there's a temptation to start feeling like you are invincible, untouchable, that you could never be caught or do wrong. Or maybe that's not how Ahab was thinking. Maybe he was just thinking that since he didn't directly kill Naboth and since he didn't directly send the letters... And since he didn't directly steal the property, that maybe he had an excuse. If that's how he's thinking, he wouldn't be the only one either, right? We are people who are really good at rationalizing our sin. We're really good at explaining, at least to ourselves, why if we were ever put on trial, we'd be acquitted. But God's unmoved by our attempts to rationalize and excuse ourselves. Here, God doesn't even engage in dialogue about it, right? God's evaluation of the situation is it didn't even matter to God that Jezebel technically wrote the letters and that the townspeople were the ones who technically killed Naboth. God's evaluation was that Ahab was the one who killed and Ahab was the one who had taken possession. Just like Adam's sin in Genesis 3, just like David's sin with Bathsheba later on, our God sees everything. He sees the innermost desires of our hearts. He sees those parts of our hearts that we don't even know ourselves well enough to know that what's exactly in there. And so for victims of injustice, that's really good news that our God sees everything. But for perpetrators of injustice, it's really bad news. And Ahab found out just what bad news it was. His sentence was that dogs would lick up his blood. That's pretty much the most disgraceful end imaginable for a king. His family line was going to end. And in this punishment, in this sentence, we see that our God is a just God. He's a God who doesn't look the other way when injustice takes place. 
He's a God actually who can't look the other way when injustice takes place because it would be contrary to his character. Do you remember how God described himself when he was first telling Moses who he was and revealing himself to Moses back in that critical passage in Exodus 34? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But look at how it ends. But who will by no means clear the guilty. When God was letting Moses know who he was, he wanted Moses to know this, that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty because he is a just God. That's essential to remember. However forgiving, however loving, however gracious our God is, he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. All sin gets punished under the rule of our God. And that's bad news for Ahab. It's especially bad news for Ahab because of the nature of Ahab's sin. Our God, Yahweh, has always made himself known as a God who is looking out for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Other gods of other nations prop up the powers that be and give them excuses for treading down on those who are of low status. But Yahweh is different. His eyes are on the powerless and the oppressed, according to Scripture, and he's always watching over them to fight their corner. That's one reason why the punishment of Ahab is so severe, but I want us to return to just thinking about our own situation and our own relationships with God for a moment. If none of our sins are hidden from God's sight, what do you have to confess this morning? What do you have to confess to God this morning, knowing that none of your sins are hidden from God's sight? To confess just fundamentally means to agree, to agree with God about what he's already said about you. So what do you have to confess? God has already seen it. None of our sins are hidden from God's sight, but he grants us the opportunity to agree with him about his declaration about us. Now, some of you might feel like, well, it doesn't seem very hopeful to confess here this morning. If this is the sort of God God is, who will by no means clear the guilty, how could I confess to him? Where would there be any hope to confess to a God like that? And that's why our story isn't complete without the final part this morning, without part three. In part three, we see mercy in verses 25 through 29. We see the principle that God's mercy can cover even the worst sin. There would be no grounds to confess. It wouldn't be very hopeful for us to confess if this final part wasn't true. But God's mercy can cover even the worst sin. Listen for that as I read verses 25 through 29. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. When Ahab heard those words, those words of judgment from Elijah, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. If you've ever been a teenager, you probably heard the question at some point, are you really sorry or are you just sorry you got caught, right? Sometimes we're really sorry 
but often it's all too easy to say we're sorry when what we're really sorry for uh, is for the consequences of our sin. And here in this text, we don't really have much of a hint as to how genuine Ahab's repentance was, right? We're not really sure to what degree he was sorry for his sin or to what degree he was sorry for the consequences of his sin, but in the end, God knows. And what's important to notice in this text is that the external signs of remorse do matter to God. Ahab tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he fasts, and God sees all that, and it matters to God. He sees that there's something going on in Ahab's heart. At the very least, he's willing to make himself look foolish as a king in front of all of his people to show that he is humbled or below God, Yahweh. And when God sees that, he says to Elijah, do you see that? Because Ahab acted this way, I'm going to alleviate what I said I was going to do to him. And so, instead of God treating Ahab like the spectacular sinner that he really was, God treats Ahab sort of like an ordinary sinner, which is far better than what Ahab deserved according to verse 25. Did you see that in verse 25? There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. That's a strong statement. There were some very wicked people along the way in 1 Kings. Yet Ahab even, even Ahab, receives mercy from God when he humbles himself. That's good news for you and me. I believe. It's good news for you and me if we've ever felt like my sin is too great for God to forgive me. Surely I'm beyond saving. Have you ever felt that way? If you haven't ever felt that way, I'm not sure you've really grasped the depths of the wickedness that exists in your heart and how grievous your sin is against a holy God. But if Ahab can thumb his nose at God for years and years and then receive mercy when he humbles himself? There's hope. There's hope even for you and for me that if God is this merciful, we can have confidence to confess our sin like we talked about a few minutes ago. Think about it. If if God was all justice and no mercy, then confession would be terrifying. To agree with God about our sin and about what he says about us would be to sign off on our own death sentence. But the good news of the gospel includes both of the dual realities that our God is both just and merciful. Remember that Exodus passage that we looked at earlier, right? We see both in the same passage as God reveals himself. He calls himself a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the mercy side, right? And then he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? That's the justice side, and both are true, and God holds them in tension as he reveals himself to Moses. The question is, how can both be true? How could the same God be both merciful and just? How could he claim to be both a God who forgives iniquity, and then in the same exact sentence, a God who says he will by no means clear the guilty? God's people couldn't fully answer that question for generations until the cross. It was at the cross that God finally, once and for all, showed the world how he could be both just and merciful. He shows his justice at the cross because at the cross we see that God will by no means clear the guilty. None of our sins have gone unnoticed or unpunished because at the cross, as Jesus voluntarily took all of our sins on himself, the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus in full and fully punished each and every one of those sins in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. Justice was done. But at the same exact moment, 
at that cross, we see mercy. The mercy of God, because on that cross, as Jesus was hanging there, God forgave us our sins so that we didn't have to die the death that we deserved to die. We didn't have to take God's wrath because Jesus took it in our place. What mercy and what grace. Mercy because we didn't get what we did deserve, which was condemnation. And grace because we got what we didn't deserve, which was eternal life with God forever. So friends, if you've been convicted this morning, during part one, that you've taken cues from the world instead of from God's word, part two of today's text showed us that the bad news is actually worse than you ever could have imagined. Because God sees your sin to a depth that you can't even see it yourself, and he will punish it to the utmost. But part three of our text today tells us that the good news, the good news is even better than you ever could have imagined it being. Because not a single one of us is too far gone to receive God's grace if we humble ourselves. That's our big idea for today. Our big idea for today is just this. Let us humble ourselves to receive God's mercy. Let us humble ourselves to receive God's mercy. Some of you may have come here this morning thinking of your sin as if it is limited to the private realm in your own life, as if it had no effect on others. If that's the case for you, it's only a matter of time before you see how your private sin will inevitably spill out into adverse effects on the other people in your life. Others of you have already seen the harm that your private sin even has done to others in your life. But whatever the case was when you came in here this morning, this morning's scripture is good news for all of us. First Kings 21 has been the gospel in miniature. In it, we've seen sin, we've seen punishment and judgment, but we've also seen grace and mercy. And in so, it's been... Uh, in miniature story of what God has done throughout all of human history. The sin that took place in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God. Then the justice that he affirmed to Moses and it reaffirmed all down the line that he was a God who would by no means clear the guilty and that no sin would go unpunished. And then the cross, which eventually came when Jesus died for our sins and where God's mercy and justice met perfectly at once and where our sins were forgiven. And even the worst of us sinners receive the mercy of God. We believe here at North Sub that Old Testament texts, like the one we've looked at today, were written first for the audience to which they were written, but not ultimately for the audience to which they were written. The New Testament tells us that Old Testament texts like this one were written ultimately for those of us living now on whom the end of the ages has come. And so I can't help but believe that when the Holy Spirit was inspiring 1 Kings 21, he was inspiring it in such a way that we would see a foreshadowing of Jesus, our Messiah, in the person of Naboth here in the text. As we finish, let me just show you what I mean. Naboth, in our text, is a figure of the true Israel, the remnant of Israel, the small group within Israel who remained faithful to God who would follow God's word and have the courage to cling to their inheritance, even in the face of a wicked king. And as such, isn't Naboth a figure of Jesus, our Messiah, to come? After all, Jesus was the ultimate remnant, the one-man remnant, the only one who ever kept the covenant that God made with his people Israel. Jesus' enemies conspired against him as Naboth did. Jesus was falsely accused as Naboth was, 
Jesus was taken outside the city to endure an unjust execution as an innocent scapegoat, taking the blame although he did nothing wrong, just as Naboth received that same sentence. And so in this text, we see the gospel and we see our King Jesus foreshadowed in 1 Kings 21, that Jesus will one day come back as the avenger of all injustice and he will tread the winepress of God's wrath. But for now, to you and I today, the blood of that Jesus, our Messiah, speaks a word of mercy for us. Let's throw ourselves on his mercy today. We pray.